Is that good? All right. Good morning. It's wonderful to be here. Um, my name is David George. Good to see you all again. Some of you I've known for a long time. Some of you, uh, not. I don't think we've met yet. But um, I grew up in the assembly. Uh, my my grandfather was an elder. My father was a deacon. Um, born on Saturday in church on Sunday morning. You know how that goes. And so, what you guys know here is is really all I've ever known. And. This, this church, if I, if I could use the word reverently, the church tradition, this is what you guys do here is all I've ever known. There is an aspect of what we do um, that I personally have not heard a lot of teaching on, but I've heard it talked about, and um, I never really appreciated kind of the deal that it was. And I, I, I be, I'm going to keep walking around. Sorry, I get nervous. Um, it's good to see you. Uh, we have, at our assembly, have been studying through the book of Malachi. And that's really kind of what spurred um, me wanting to bring this topic to you folks this morning. And it, it is the idea, or the doctrine, of the priesthood of every believer. And I, I don't know if you guys uh, recognized it last year, um, but uh, some, many denominations did, that last year, 2017, was the 500th anniversary of something. You guys remember what that was? The Reformation. Specifically, that was the year a fellow by the name of Martin Luther declared his 95 theses. And he was a part of um, the church. We would, I think we would call it the Roman Catholic Church. And as he studied, he, he lived in Germany. He was a German guy. Um, he realized that there was doctrines and dogma of the church that didn't line up with Scripture. And, and he listed out 95 things um, and, and there was four in particular that really were the foundation pillars of the Reformation. The, the, the tradition, so to speak, that you and I now worship in, exist in. And, and, and one of those things was um, salvation is through grace. Salvation is through faith alone. No works involved. Um, and, and another one of those pillars was the priesthood of every believer. That there is no clergy-laity distinction. There is not a special group of people called priests and then everybody else. But that God recognizes every believer, New Testament dispensation, as a priest before him. So if you would, turn in your Bibles, because we're not going to make statements that aren't based on Scripture. Turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of 1 Peter. Now, the interesting thing is there's not a whole lot of scripture around this idea of the priesthood of every believer. Um, it's almost like the New Testament writers were like, duh, right? You, 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 this should be almost obvious, right? So, 1 Peter, chapter 2, and I'm sure you guys are familiar with these verses. Verse 5, and again, this is addressed to believers. The Apostle Peter writes this, You also, as living stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, 
And he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them that stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto they are also appointed. Here's the second verse concerning the priesthood. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. So in verse 5, we were referred to as a holy priesthood. In verse 9, we're referred to as a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Turning over to Revelation chapter uh, chapter 1, there are three other direct references uh, to the priesthood of every believer in Scripture. The other three are in the book of Revelation. For the sake of time, we're just going to look at the first one. Revelation chapter 1. Revelation was in my Bible this morning. Ah, here it is. We'll begin in verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is, this, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God. Now, this phrase that's translated here in the King James, kings and priests, might be translated differently in your Bible. It may be translated in a kingdom of priests. Both translations are okay. But it's interesting, kingdom of priests. Um, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The other references to uh, the priesthood of every believer is a very similar uh, reference from Revelation 1, is in Revelation chapter 5, I believe it's in verse 10. And then also there's a reference in uh, Revelation, I think it's 22, talking about a future state of believers. We shall be priests unto God. It's interesting that we, we, we need to look at those two verbs, because in that Revelation 22 reference, it's something that's future, but in these other references, it's something that's present. We are a holy priesthood, says Peter. You are a royal priesthood. Present tense. Present tense. Now, again, having grown up in this church tradition, and again, I use that word reverently, um, I didn't come out of some other tradition in which there was priests in that whole thing. So, the priesthood of believer to me was always, uh, you know, okay, all right. It didn't the, the the whole formality of it didn't really impress me. If you have come from one of those traditions in which there was formally recognized clergy, you probably have a better idea of what it is that priests do, right? If we are to be, or if we are, a holy priesthood, if we are a royal priesthood, do we know, do we appreciate what it is to be a priest? And where would we go to find out? 
Scripture. Thank you, brother. For a second there, I thought I was staring at an oil painting. Um, work with me, folks. Work with me. All right. So if we want to understand what God expects, because we don't really care what man expects, but if we want to understand what God expects out of a priest, we would go to Scripture and look. And we would have to look back into the Old So we understand that under the Mosaic Law, in the nation of Israel, there were 12 tribes. There was one tribe, the tribe of Levi, from which the priesthood came. So the deal was this. Not everybody who was an Israelite could be a priest. You had to be born into it. Huh. And within the tribe of Levi, um, you guys remember when the land got divided up? And the Levites didn't get a chunk of land. All the other 11 tribes got land that they could live on, that they could call their own, that they could farm, that they could generate the stuff that they needed to live and, and their wealth, right? But not so the Levites. They were scattered throughout all of Israel. The Levites had to live in dependence on God. Huh. Within the tribe of Levi, um, there's a lot of people. There's, ultimately, there became one tabernacle, right? The Lord had that, the design given to Moses, and it was built, and the tabernacle existed for several hundred years. And then from that, at the time of Solomon, a temple was built, a permanent structure. The tabernacle was a tent. You could move it. It needed a certain number of people to work in it, to do the stuff that had to happen within that tabernacle. And one of the amazing things about the tabernacle and later on the temple is that is the place where the actual presence of God rested in the midst of the nation. If we went back and we looked at Leviticus chapter 23, we would see that God's desire was to dwell in the midst of his people. Did you guys hear that? God's desire was to dwell in the midst of his people. <laughs> we just sang a whole bunch of songs about that, right? And so that place where God dwelt was in the innermost chamber of the tabernacle. That's where his presence was manifested. You can actually see it. It's called the Shekinah glory of God. It was this glowing cloud. It was the evidence of God being with the people. Now, not to say he still wasn't omniscient and omnipotent, but this was this manifestation of God in their midst. So that's in the holiest of holies, right? And then we sang about a veil that was torn. There's a veil separating that holiest holies from the next chamber of the tabernacle. That's called the holy place. And there is three pieces of furniture in there. There is a table, there's a, um, a lampstand, and there was a small altar of incense. And it was the privilege of the priests to do the work associated with those three pieces of furniture. They could either bring the showbread in that went on the table, they could burn incense on the altar of incense, or they could add oil and trim the wicks on the lamps that were in there, right? the candlestick. Only the priests could go in there. Only They were the ones who could get as close as you possibly could get to God. Now, the holiest of holies in the back, only one priest, one time a year, could go in that room. The high priest. Now, how did you become the high priest? Again, 
you had to be a Levite. You didn't have to be just any Levite. You had to be a direct descendant of Aaron. But you couldn't just be a direct descendant of Aaron. You had to be particularly a descendant of one of his particular sons. Again, you were born into it. And only once a year could you go behind that veil with blood. Leviticus chapter 16, Day of Atonement. Now as we step out of the holy place and sort of the, into the courtyard of the tabernacle, um, there is a, a piece of furniture. We would sort of refer to it as kind of a birdbath. That's kind of what it looked like in our day today. It's called the laver. It was a pedestal that had a big bowl on it filled with water. And again, only the priests could come near that. And that was the place that they would get cleaned up. And then as you walk out, again, away from the Holy of Holies, the next piece of furniture that you would come to would be the brazen altar. And that is the place where sacrifices, the prescribed sacrifices, were burnt before the Lord. Now, if you were one of the members of the 11 tribes of Israel, the brazen altar, as you came through the door, that's as close as you could get. You could come into the courtyard, you can offer a sacrifice there, but then you had to leave. You, you couldn't go any farther. You couldn't come near the labor. You certainly couldn't come into the holy place or never into the holiest of holies, right? So priests had this amazing privilege of worshiping and serving as close as you could to God. Now, all of the Levites couldn't be in the tabernacle all at the same time. There's just too many of them. So they worked out a rotation. And, and there would be different families from different areas that would come and serve. And there's lots of different jobs to do. There's, I mean, I, I heat my house with wood. I burn about 10 cord a year. Right? It's a lot of wood. I've got to tell you right now, my back hurts. My sons have left, and I've got to do wood by myself now. It is work, right? But there's an altar that's burning all the time in the tabernacle. Somebody's got to collect the firewood a function of the priest. There's offerings that are being brought in. Animals are being sacrificed in their skin. They're being skinned and they're being gutted. And there's stuff that has to be taken care of, right? Ashes have to be taken out. There's, um, there's, there has to be a collection for the fine oil that's being brought um, for the lampstand. There's uh, a special incense that has to be made and brought into the holy place to burn on the altar of incense. There's bread that has to be baked in a very specific way to put. There's lots of different things to do. And on top of that, there's people who would sing and people who would just worship God in the tabernacle and later in the temple. There's lots of things for a priest to do. But the time that they served in the tabernacle was really actually a very small portion of their life that they would do that collectively. Most of the time they spent back in their hometowns living their lives, right? And the deal was wherever they lived, they were to be an example to everybody else who lived around them of the great God whom they served. And if folks had questions about God's law or God's word, they were to go to the priests, they, they were the resource to go to. And if there was a dispute amongst folks, I know that kind of stuff doesn't ever happen among this crowd, right? But if there was some sort of a disagreement, the, the Levites served as the judicial system. And, and you would go 
to the local priest, and, and they would hear the case, and they would, they would make a determination. And you could refer your case, it worked similar to our justice system, you could refer your case all the way up to what we would call the Supreme Court, but what they would call the high priest. They settled disputes. The New Testament, New Testament dispensation, says very clearly, those who are believers are priests, are part of a priesthood unto God. And folks, the thing I just want to put forward to you this morning is do you appreciate that? Does that matter to you? Have you ever thought about it before? You see, to be a priest under the Mosaic dispensation, that was an amazing privilege. That was a unique privilege. And with that privilege came unique responsibilities. When you... um, Let's turn, if you would, to the book of Malachi. Now, Malachi is a corrective book. Malachi is not a feel-good book, particularly the first two and a half chapters. Malachi is a book that kicks my butt every time, because it's so convicting. It is just so convicting. And so one of the messages that God has uh, through his servant Malachi is specifically for the priests. Now, Malachi is one of those books we typically don't go to a lot. It's the last book of the Old Testament. So if you can find Matthew, just turn back a couple of pages and you'll find Malachi. God has some specific things to say to the priests in Malachi's day. The year is probably around uh, 420. What has gone on is, is uh, Judah had been carried away into captivity in Babylon that captivity is over. They come back into the land. That was probably it was about 536 B.C. They, uh, they were very happy. They were happy to, to be back in the land. Um, if you want to read about that, how that folks came back, that's the book of Ezra. 50,000 under Zerubbabel come back. And they start building the temple again, and then they get discouraged and they stop. And then um, as we read the book of Haggai, we find the Lord encouraging the people to get busy building the temple again. And and, uh, the Lord miraculously works out some things there. And they complete the temple. And um, things seem to be on the right track. And that's probably around 512, 515 B.C. And then we have the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah finds out that the the wall of Jerusalem is falling down. And so Nehemiah, for a time reference, is around 450 B.C., he comes back, and in, and in 52 days, he rallies the people, and they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. In 52 days, the walls that had stood in ruins for over 100 years, Nehemiah has them rebuilt in 52 days. And there's some things that are kind of out of line, and Nehemiah, Nehemiah was, a, uh, man, he was a bold man. He sets things back on course. And it's, like I said, it's probably now around 420. It's probably about 30 years after Nehemiah that we have this last prophetic utterance to the nation of Israel through, through Malachi. And part of this message is directed directly to the priests. And the issue here is that the priests were not taking their priesthood seriously. And folks, it mattered to God understand me? It mattered to God. 
Malachi chapter 1. We are going to move quickly through this. I'm a guy who likes to get down into the weeds, and I'm going to try not to because none of us will ever go home if I do that. But um, Okay, thank you, brother. Malachi chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is my honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear, saith the Lord of hosts? Uh, just a quick aside here, that phrase, Lord of hosts, it, it, it means, and maybe uh, your translation may have it, captain of the armies of heaven. Captain of the armies of heaven. It's used 24 times in the book of Malachi. That is by far proportionally the most times it's used any place else in the Old Testament. Captain of the armies of heaven. And so you get this sense that God is speaking from this place of uh, authority and ability. O priests that despise my name. Malachi uses, and the Spirit of God uses this question and answer uh, format throughout the book. O priests that despise my name. And you say, wherein have we despised thy name? You offer polluted bread upon my altar, and you say, where have we polluted thee? It's that you say, the table of the Lord is contemptible or worthless. How was that made evident that the people, that the priests themselves thought the table of the Lord was contemptible or worthless? If you offer, verse 7 or verse 8, if you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? Folks, do you understand what was going on? It's not that the priests weren't acting religiously. It's not like they weren't doing the sacrifices. There was all kinds of religious activity going on. But the prevailing attitude among the priests was, the quality of the sacrifice doesn't matter. doesn't matter. There's this pragmatic thing probably, right? Why kill the good ones? Why kill the perfect lambs? blind, the lame, the ones you really don't want to reproduce. God will never know. Once the skin's off them, who can tell? You know what God saw in that? He said, you despise my name. You're declaring me contemptible. Verse 9, and now I pray you beseech God that he will be gracious unto you. That's, that is, he's sort of, um, in a sense, mocking how they would pray. They would, bring these, they, they would bring these sacrifices, which it's very specific in the Mosaic law, exactly the quality of the sacrifices that are to be brought, right? Animals were to be taken and they were to be observed to make sure that they were perfect, without spot or blemish. But why is that important? Quick aside here. Why was that important? Amen. Every single one of the sacrifices, all of them, point to Jesus Christ. All of them. That's why they were to be perfect. They were to be perfect. 
the people bring these, or the, the priests offer up these defective sacrifices, and then they make these pious prayers. I pray you, God, be gracious unto us. This has been your means. Will he regard your person, saith the Lord of hosts? Why do you bring the things that you have determined to be worthless and then say, God, you, you, you owe me? Who is there even among you that might shut, that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do you kindle fire on my altar for nothing. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. God is declaring this in, in no uncertain terms. I would prefer the door to the temple was shut and the fire on the altar was out to what you're doing. I would prefer nothing to what you're doing. From the rising of the sun, even to the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the nations. And in every place incense shall be offered unto my name in a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. But you have profaned it. What does that word profane mean? Polluted? Okay. Sorry? Shamed? Yup. It, it literally means to treat as common. To treat as common. And I, I, I don't know if I've used this analogy before, but it works for me, and I'm I, sorry if I'm boring you guys by repeating myself, but we have two sets of dishes in my house. We have Corel, everyday stuff, so the kids can't shatter it, right? And then, down in the basement, packed in boxes... We have the good stuff, right? I'll never forget this. I, see, I was male and clueless, right? Um, those words are almost synonymous. Um, before my wife and I got married, we had to make a trip down to New Jersey. Um, this was all new to me. We had to go get our formal china before we got married, and we went to the Mikasa factory outlet. And I walked into this. It's like a warehouse, right? And the first thing that came to my mind was, this would be a great place to have a BB gun. Because there are stacks of like these fine goblets all over the place, right? So my wife had the pattern picked out and all this stuff. And so this is, this is true word right here. My sons, some of them don't, my youngest son didn't even know this. Packed in boxes under the stairs of her basement are those Mikasa plates and platters and cups and saucers. I think we've used them. My wife and I will celebrate our 30th anniversary this year maybe a dozen times in our marriage. And when those, when those things get brought out, right, um, and they are treated, I'll say this with reverence, you're, you're careful with the stuff, and it's too good to put into the dishwasher. So every plate after the meal is washed by hand, dried by hand, and very carefully put back into the same package. Yeah, it's, yeah, I'm but here's the deal. They're not treated like they're common. See the, see the difference? But you have profaned it, verse 12. 
in that you say the table of the Lord is polluted and the fruit thereof, even its meat, is contemptible. How do you do that? By treating it like it's not special. That's how the priests here had profaned, had polluted this immense, amazing privilege that they had of drawing near to God. They treated it like it was no big deal. Verse 13, ye said also, behold, what a weariness it is, and you have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts. You ever seen somebody snuff at food? Remember one of my sons doing that. Some, my wife had cooked something, and it came around, my son took it. Went, <laughs> what is it? Be careful, mom's going to hurt you. It's a sign of disrespect. What is that? See, here's the amazing thing, is when the priests, the Levites, were serving in the tabernacle or in the temple, they weren't home working their fields. They weren't home earning a living. The way they survived is off of the offerings that would come into the temple, the prescribed offerings that the people would bring. And literally, it's the stuff that God provided for them. It was God's gift to them to keep them and their families alive. And they snuffed at it. They snuffed at it. What is that? You brought that which was torn and the lame, and the sick. Thus ye brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord. King James translates the first of those three things as torn. Um, if you have a newer translation, the word literally means stolen. Stolen. Now think about that for a second. These are the priests, right? They're complicit if they're not actively involved when you need a sacrifice, just steal one on your way to the temple. What? They were okay with that. That which is stolen, that which was lame, that which is sick, things that they knew were unacceptable. Should I accept this? From your hand, saith the Lord. But cursed be the deceiver which hath in his flock a male and vows and sacrifices unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful or to be feared among the nations. And again, implied in this is, do you understand what's going on here? God is not interested at all in religious activity. He's not. He actually hates it. What was vitally important is that through the nation of Israel, and then if we fine-tune that even more, through the priesthood, a proper revelation or representation of the creator God of Israel would be made not only to the rest of Israel, but to the world, to the nations. That picture happened 
through all the things that God has prescribed for the priest to do. It mattered to God. It didn't matter to the priest. Chapter 2, verse 1. And now, O ye priests, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear, if you will not lay it to heart, to give glory unto my name, saith the Lord of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yea, I have cursed them already, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will corrupt your seed, and will spread dung upon your faces, even the dung of your solemn feasts, and one shall take you away with it. That was a serious warning God gave to the priesthood. And the wonderful thing is, in his grace, he put off that judgment for about another 500 years. Because in 70 A.D., the Lord fulfilled this promise of a curse. And the place wherewith the, the, the priests would take the entrails and the ashes of the animals that were burnt um, on the altar in Jerusalem and take them outside the camp, the Romans, when they destroyed the city and destroyed the temple, marched them right out to the place, the burial place. Right? God was gracious to them for another 500 years. Right? Verse 4, And you shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you, that my covenant might be with Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him of life and peace. And I gave them to him for the, for the fear wherewith he feared me and was afraid before my name. Now, Levi is the third son of Jacob, right? Yes, yes. Levi is the third son of Jacob. Um, Levi was never a priest. Levi actually was not a very good man. If we read the accounts in Genesis, he was a bit of a cad. Um, so what is this referring to? And we're not going to have time to look at it, but um, I will sum it up for you. If you go back to the book of Numbers in chapter 25, you're going to read the account of a fellow by the name of Phineas. Phineas is the grandson of Aaron. And what had happened, do um, you guys remember this dude named Balaam? Sorry. So Balaam was, was hired by uh, the Midianite king to curse Israel, and uh, God wouldn't let it happen. And um, the Midianite king was mad and wasn't going to pay Balaam the price that Balaam wanted. So Balaam said, listen, I can't curse God's people, but here's what you can do. Send your prostitutes down and your, 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 your temple prostitutes down into their camp and corrupt them. It'll work just as good. So the Midianite king says, yeah, okay, we'll do that. And that's going on, and God begins to bring judgment to the camp of Israel. And there's, there are people dying in the camp. And, and um, the leaders of Israel are gathered in one place. They might be under some sort of little pavilion to be out of the sun, but they're gathered in one place. And as they're praying and trying to sort out, what are we going to do? A, a Simeonite by the name of Zimri walks right past them, holding hands with a Midianite prostitute whose name is Cosby. Walks right past them. It's not like a couple of teenagers sneaking around in the middle of the night. He brazenly takes this prostitute right through the camp, right past the leadership, and right into his tent. There's a phrase um, 
in, uh, in the Old Testament, in, in uh, the books of Moses. It's, uh, it's the phrase, with a high hand. Ever, ever come across that in the King James? With a high hand. In today's parlance, it sort of means in your face, right? Um, the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt with a high hand, right? It was, a, it was an in-your-face Egypt and all, and all your fake gods. It was, a, it was with a high hand. So that's in a positive way. It's also used in a negative way, that sins that are committed with a high hand, there is, there's no sacrifice for them, adultery being one of them. Fornication, adultery. And so in the midst of this really horrible moment in, in the history of the nation of Israel where there's judgment in the camp and there's people dying because of their sin and there's this one member of, of, of the, the congregation who brazenly brings this prostitute right past the leadership in broad daylight and goes right into his tent to commit sin in front of anybody, of everybody, Phineas... The grandson of Aaron says, this cannot be born. And he picks up a spear, and he follows Zimri and Cosby into the tent, and he pins them both to the ground. He kills them both. Numbers chapter 25. Now, I am not suggesting that that is a technique that at all should be used or employed in our day and age. But what happens as a result of that is God gives the covenant of the high priesthood to Phineas and his descendants. And these words here found in Malachi chapter 2 are direct quotes from Numbers 25. My covenant was with him of life and peace. The expectation that God had of the priesthood was based on a covenant of life and peace. And I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me. Now, do you think in that moment of time when Phineas saw what he saw and everybody else around him was not acting, do you think it was difficult for Phineas to take action? Yeah. But there's something that he feared more than the, the disapproval of men. He feared more the disapproval of God. He was zealous for the things of God. And in accordance with the law the revealed truth of God that had already been given, that this type of behavior that was being expressed by Zimri could not be tolerated, and it was punishable by death. Zimri, I'm sorry, uh, Phineas acted on the revealed word of God. And God said, because of the way you feared me, because of the way that you reverenced me, I'm going to make a special covenant. It's a covenant of life and peace. Life and peace. Do you know when we... uh, There's two phrases in the New Testament. There's the peace of God. Right? You guys read that one before? And there's peace with God. Two very different things. We have peace with God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And by accepting what the Lord Jesus has done on our behalf, we have peace with God. The peace of God is that sense, so to speak, that God's in control. He's got it. I don't need to be afraid. 
Phineas, by being zealous for God and acting on that zeal in accordance with the revelation of God, his word, that had already happened. God makes a unique covenant with him and his descendants, this covenant of life and peace. He was afraid before my name. Verse 6, the law of truth was in his mouth, and iniquity was not found in his lips. The interesting thing is if you go back to Numbers 25 and you read the account, there's no mention of Phineas ever saying anything. But there was no iniquity in his lips. His actions spoke louder. Right? The way he acted spoke louder. He walked with me in peace and equity, and he did turn many away from iniquity. The example of his life was such that other people could look at it and go, I need to honor God. I need to honor God. For verse 7, chapter 2, for the priest's lips should keep knowledge. That word knowledge can also be uh, translated discernment. The ability to tell the difference. Right? And they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Here in just these few verses is the expectation the Lord has for a priest. A sense of zeal for God. To fear him and to not fear man. To be one um, on whose lips is the law of truth. Not the law of opinion, not the law of tradition, but the law of truth. What is truth? What is truth? Amen. Everything that God has spoken is truth. I had one brother who defined it this way. It's always stuck with me. Truth is the way things really are. The way things really are. The expectation of a priest is that iniquity not be found in their lips. One of the things that, that uh, Peter said was unique about the Lord Jesus was there was no guile in him. There was no duplicity. There was no shades of gray. He walked with me in peace and equity. Those are two words we can spend a lot of time meditating on, right? He walked with me in peace and equity. There's that peace of God and equity. How do you walk in equity with God? Literally, in a day to come, but for today, right now, how do we walk in equity with God? Well, when we stand upon his word, we're standing upon the same ground that God stands on. Right? To stand anywhere else than on the word of God is to be incomparably lower than where God is. How can we walk with God in peace when equity? By abiding in his word. Abiding in his word.
The priest's lips should keep knowledge or have discernment, able to tell the difference between what is good and evil, able to tell the difference between what is good and what is best. Based upon the word of God, they should seek the law at his mouth. Priests should be folks other folks come to, to learn about God. He is the messenger or the Malachi, quite literally. Malachi means messenger. He is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But verse 8 says this, But ye are departed out of the way. And the idea behind this departing, it's not um, like, oh, somehow you drifted off course and got lost. It's not this accidental sort of being out of the way. It is you have deliberately chosen to go a different way. This is an act of will. You knew what was right and what was true, and you chose to do something else. And certainly that's evidence from what we read in chapter 1, right? There's blind and lame and stolen things being offered. Those, those aren't accidents. You are departed out of the way you have caused, instead of causing iniquity, uh, or uh, turn many away from iniquity, you have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore have I made also you contemptible and base before all the people, according as you have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. Sober stuff. Sober stuff. Saints, brothers and sisters, here's the wonderful thing. Scripture declares that if you're a believer, you are a priest. doesn't matter if you're male or female. doesn't matter if you're young or old. You are a priest. As a priest, you have this amazing privilege in the dispensation that we now live in to worship and serve God in a unique and wonderful way. And there's no one of us who is better than the other. There's no, there's no degrees or levels. There's no one who is a more priest than you are. You have the same access. We sang in the song, The Veil is Torn, right? Why is that important? Ways open! The way it had been with the veil intact... One guy, the high priest, once a year, he was the only one who could get that close to God. Veil's torn. Every priest can come close. The veil's not there anymore. We have this amazing privilege to worship and serve God. And we get to do that collectively together. Now, the New Testament puts... Um, some modifiers on that, right? First Corinthians tells us that the men should speak audibly and the gal should be silent in these meetings, these collective meetings. But does that mean the gals sit as spectators? No! Everybody should be here to worship. Hearts tuned in. Ready to sacrifice to bring your sacrifice the best that you have. Not something sick, not something lame, not something stolen. What do I mean by that? 
not some thought you pulled out of some old choice gleanings calendar from two years ago that you hope nobody remembers because you want to be impressive at the Lord's Supper. That is stealing an offering. Okay? Not some sort of half-baked thing that you threw together, again, because you want to look good to the people in the assembly. That is a lame offering. Saints, do we purposefully, during the week, as you do your devotions, as you pray and meditate on the Lord, do you think and pray about, Lord, show me something from your word about your son that I can bring Sunday morning and edify the saints with as we remember him? I want to bring my best. Ladies, are you praying for the men? Oh, they need prayer. They need prayer because you know what? I'll never forget the first time I stood up at the Lord's Supper. My heart almost pounded out of my chest. I was terrified. Christians are scary people. Could you pray for me? That I'd be single-minded. That I'd listen to the Holy Spirit. Pray for the other men. That they would be bold. That they would be in the Word. And we get to do that collectively, right? Once, one, one day a week. But then we go home where we spend most of our time, right? And the deal is we should be living in dependence on the Lord. That doesn't say go quit your job and sit in the corner and wait for you know, money to fall from the sky. No, 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 no. You live, and I, we should live day by day in the understanding that God provides everything I need, and I don't need to worry because I have a good God who knows all my financial needs, he knows all my emotional needs, he knows all my medical needs. He's got it. He's got it. And the way I should live my life should be in such a way that the heathens that I live around would know I'm a priest of the Most High God, the Lord of hosts. And that I could be a resource. If they have a question about God, they should know to ask me. They should know to ask you. They should know. Now maybe you're hearing you're a young person and you're thinking to yourself, Mr. George, you're all right, all right, you're kind of hmm, you're going here, but what what am I supposed to do? Read 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2. There's a little boy in the name of Samuel. Mother dedicated him to the Lord, dropped him off at Shiloh at the tabernacle. What's a five-year-old going to do? Anything a five-year-old could do. Don't think for a second that there's no menial task or there's, there's, there's nothing that is unimportant to God. Uh, somebody asked earlier that the assembly needs ushers. I'm sure that's not the only need here. You have a unique privilege to worship and serve as a priest. Do you take it seriously? Because God does. It matters to him. Thank you for your patience. Let's close in prayer. Father, I confess before you that for too long, 
I have so little understood this amazing privilege that you have for me and for all of my brothers and sisters that we would be, we would serve you as a priest. Lord, I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters here today that by your spirit you would grow me, grow them, reveal more ways in which we could honor you in our service. Oh, Lord, we do not want to be anything like the priests we read about in Malachi. Lord, help us, preserve us from religious activity. Preserve us from being nonchalant about worshiping you. Lord, help us to never treat you as common. Lord, we thank you so much for your patience and your love towards us. We thank you so much how you write things out so plainly in your word for us to see and to understand. Lord, thank you that through the work of your son, the Lord Jesus, we can actually walk with you in peace and in equity. Lord, help us to live that out. Help that to be a reality in our lives, day by day, moment by moment. Lord, may indeed it be true what you have written in Hebrews chapter 13, that the offering of praise would be continually on our lips. That the heathen may know that we are a royal, holy priesthood who serve the Lord of hosts. And that there is life and peace in him. We thank you again for your love and your goodness to us. We pray all of these things in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.